responsible for killing and assaulting at least seven women and suspected of more, this stalker and serial killer showed early signs of his dark tendencies throughout his childhood. But somehow, he avoided going to prison for years, despite his laundry list of a criminal background. The Baton Rouge community and the rest of Louisiana was stumped, trying to find the missing piece to their puzzling amount of murder victims in the area. Today, we cover Derek Todd Lee, aka the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. This episode was researched in light of January being National Stalking Awareness Month. More information on resources can be found at the end of this episode. This episode contains discussion of sexual assault and murder. Welcome to An Easy, a podcast hosted by Lexi and Cecilia. This podcast is a collection of research based on haunting and mysterious events that will leave you feeling genuinely uneasy. Discretion is advised. Derek Todd Lee was born on November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana. He was the second of four children and was born to his mother, Florence, and father, Samuel. He lived close to cousins and spent most of his time outside playing like a normal child. His father was a mental health consumer and soon left after he was born and actually ended up in a mental institution after being charged with attempted murder of his ex-wife. His mother remarried a man named Coleman, who ended up just raising Derek with his mom, Florence. Derek's IQ was calculated to be below 70 to 75, and he was placed in special education classes as a child and became a social outcast. He was even reported to suck his thumb well into his childhood and called his teachers mama, which really highlights his search for another mother figure in his life. Around the age of nine, he began to form the habit of being a peeping Tom. He would peep into the windows of neighborhood girls, and this characteristic will follow him well into adulthood. These young girls included his cousins, which he lived near, and his family argued for some time that he was just a curious boy, um, but he was actually really pushing the limits of a normal age child to peep in on other girls. Yeah, especially at the age of nine, I feel like that's not something that most little boys are doing. Right. And this is sometimes a sign that the child was being abused at a young age, um, but there's no record of him ever being abused by a family member or by his parents or anything like that. So unfortunately, the family swept it under the rug and even his cousins didn't really raise big concern or fuss about him peeping in on them. By the age of 13, he began to rack up quite the police record. That's so young. Yeah, so when he was 13, he was arrested for simple burglary and received a brief probation period, so there wasn't really any real consequence or for him to really feel like sorry about what he had done, Um, so that's when he really discovered the thrill of invading a space that he wasn't supposed to be in. At the age of 16, he pulled a knife on a boy in a fight and was charged with attempted second-degree murder, but that was eventually dropped, allowing him to continue to ramp up his love for committing violent crimes with literally no consequence. And at 17, he decided to start looking for new victims outside of his neighborhood, meaning women who were not his relatives, to peep in on. He would often pick out a woman in public and find where she lives and then camp out at her house for nights on ends. And although his family pushed his behavior under the rug, 
Others did not, rightfully so. They found this very odd that a 17-year-old boy almost man was staring at them through their windows. Girls complained about him staring through the windows and one woman's brother even called the police. Unfortunately, he wasn't arrested or incarcerated or received jail time or any sort of probation. He was let off with a warning as being a peeping Tom isn't really treated as serious as other offenses and the police basically just saw him as being an annoying teenage boy. I feel like by this time, like, if I was him, I could just think that I'm invincible and the law has caught up to me in quotes for multiple occasions now, but they don't seem to care about what I'm doing, so I would just go ahead and keep doing it. Like, it's crazy that he's had so many run-ins with the law and yet nothing's ever happened. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It really kind of boosted his ego to think, that he will never get in trouble and he can just do whatever he wants. His family wasn't punishing him and neither was the law, so there was no real line of moral judgment for him or anything for him to even feel sorry about because nobody was telling him that it was wrong. Moving into his adult life, Derek moves to Zachary, Louisiana, outside of Baton Rouge, which was a quiet escape from the city full of families and single women. It was the perfect place for his obsession with peeping on women to flourish. In 1987, he found work as a pipe fitter, and he seemed to be getting to a normal life, leaving his string of violence and peeping behind him as he fell in love with a woman named Jackie Sims, and they were married in 1988, and in 1992, they had a son and a daughter together. Jackie's father passed away in an accident, resulting in a lawsuit and a settlement of money. And by money, I mean a lot of money. And he spent that on cars, gold chains, dressing well. He had literally no problem spending his wife's father's money. And he really wanted to look like this suave, cool guy with the fancy clothes and jewelry and and cars. And this, along with other things, actually contributed to a lot of issues in the marriage. Derek would often go out and leave Jackie alone with the children at night. And Jackie never asked where he was going or what he was doing in an effort to keep some sort of peace within the marriage, which I can see to a point but if it's every night I think I would be asking yeah (laughs) he um, actually had a large temper and eventually started physically abusing her and at one point she issued a restraining order against him and that only lasted for a few months because she ended up lifting it um, which can happen in cases of domestic abuse sometimes it's a really hard thing to navigate um But the abuse continued after the restraining order was lifted. I feel like that also, in part, explains why she didn't really ask him where he was going. Because they're just like, it's better off that he's just not here. Like, I'd rather him be gone than him be at home. Right. The the couple actually enjoyed their time apart because, like you said, it meant that Jackie was able to get away from the abuse by him leaving every night. And Derek was able to do whatever he wanted, which... He did anyways when he was a kid, and now he's doing in his adult life. And he started going out even more frequently. He would go to bars, and he was described by other women that he was 
attractive and there was just something really like interesting about him like I said he was really trying to be this suave guy so he's trying to flirt with women at bars um and as an adult this peeping behavior that he had as a kid became highly sexual for him in his older years um and eventually his behaviors will become very violent he really craved power and control because he knew he could take it without any consequences. He ended up having an affair with a woman named Cassandra, and it was an absolute thrill for him. He believed deeply that he was desired by women, and this was fueled by going out and flirting with women who were not his wife, um, and even spending the night with some of them and Cassandra becomes a longtime girlfriend for him on top of having his wife. It's at this point that it's clear that his peeping had developed into something more. Derek had what is called a voyeuristic disorder. This is when you get pleasure from watching others undress or do other things, and this disorder also directly affects your personal life family, work, and friends, and this fits Derek to a T. He spent almost every night looking for a new woman to watch, and there was never any sort of break in that habit for him. It just completely consumed his life. However, people with this disorder don't usually move past just watching their victims, um, but Derek unfortunately took things a lot further. Um, this disorder has kind of been like a gateway drug for sexual assault in a way where it it leaves the people with this or disorder wanting more and so it's an easy pathway for them to instead of just watch their victims actually pursue an attack and it makes sense that he did progress past just watching them because he really started his voyeuristic like desires at such a young age so by the time he's adult and he's now like back watching women, it, it makes sense that it has progressed so much because what was it at age nine? He was already watching women. Right. Yeah. It's been something of a hobby for him for so long. And now it's a huge part of his life. In July 1997, the police received a call regarding a peeping Tom. This, in fact, was Derek Todd Lee. The police chased him down and arrested him, and he received two years probation for spying on women, but yet again did not go to jail. So for him, he's like, oh, probation, whatever. I still didn't have to go to jail or pay any fines. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. At this point, Derek's marriage was on the brink of collapsing, and his relationship with his girlfriend was not much better. He had a hard time keeping a job, and he began to lose all the confidence that he had earned over the years from flirting with random women at bars and them telling him he's attractive and um, being able to spend money on these expensive things. He's really beginning to lose some of his confidence in, in a search for control and power. That all comes to a head in 1998 when Randy... Mewborough disappeared from her home in Zachary, Louisiana, where Derek lived. Her three-year-old son, Michael, was asleep in his room while all of this occurred, and her son was found looking for his mom outside the family home the following morning all by himself. That's so sad. Yeah, so the neighbor, like, went outside and just saw this three-year-old boy wandering in the yard. Oh my goodness. So she 
went and picked him up, took him back to her house after seeing that when she looked into the house, she could see blood. So she didn't go completely into the house, just kind of looked down like a shotgun hallway and could see that the house was, obviously there was a, a crime scene there. So she takes she takes Randy's son, Michael, back to the house and proceeded to call 911. The police found Randy's house to be a horrendous crime scene with blood in her bedroom and even her contact lenses sitting in a pool of blood. The blood in the house indicated that she had been drugged outside of the house by whoever the perpetrator was, and the police originally thought that she was killed by her ex-husband as he tried to cash in her life insurance after she died, which, that's an obvious route to go down. That's suspicious. That's fair, yeah. As they investigated the ex-husband, Derek went on living his life. Um, However, Derek was the perpetrator of this crime. It's possible that he had stalked Randy for weeks to determine where she lived and what her schedule was like and that she lived alone. The night of the disappearance, Derek watched her as she watched a movie with her son, put her son to bed, and then proceeded to watch the lottery numbers before going to bed herself. After she went to bed, Derek proceeded to open the door and attack her and took her from her home. Randy's body has never been found. So this is Derek's first confirmed kill that's such a horrific kill to be your first kill horrific kill right and that's why i say suspected um you'll hear me mention throughout this episode that there's actually a lot of murders that people suspect that derek committed um other than the seven that are confirmed um however there hasn't been enough dna like solid evidence to connect him to it but the motive and the way of the crime fits directly with Derek's other crimes, so that's why a lot of people suspect it. And if it was his first kill, you said that he was losing both of his relationships, he was had a hard time with his job, and then he was losing his confidence too, and that has been shown in other murders to be the really key pivotal point where they lose all control. And it just all builds up and it's a tipping point causing them to act out in such an extreme way. So though it is a really horrific murder, if it is first at the end of the day, like what caused it does make sense. Right. I think that it was all kind of like boiling up for him. He has these personal life issues and then he's no longer getting the gratification that he wanted from just simply watching women. Um, So I think that not only him stalking Randy for weeks leads it to be a crime of passion in a way because he's stalked her for so long and gotten to know her. Um, But I think it's also like a release for him in a way, like trying to get out all of these tendencies that he's been pushing down for so long. Following this murder, Derek had two other run-ins with the law. The first was another peeping charge, which resulted in only two years supervised probation and then an assault charge after turning his anger to his long-term girlfriend, putting him behind bars for one year in 2000. He was released from prison in January 2001. So he was finally put in prison for something that he did, and after he was released, he immediately began wandering the neighborhoods of Louisiana State University, which contained both 
students and locals looking for new women to watch and prey on. On September 23, 2001, a woman by the name of Gina Green was raped and murdered in her home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Derek had been watching her for weeks through the windows, and that night he entered the home but set off alarms, so he got super spooked. It was a big alarm that went off, like the flashing lights. He saw her wake up, so he goes and hides in a bush, and it kind of made him mad that he wasn't able to do this crime that he had been watching Gina for so long. How dare she have a security system? (laughs) Right. How dare she be safe? So he actually ended up waiting for a a few more hours and then tried again by simply just knocking on the door in the morning. When she answered the door, he attacked her and took her to the bedroom, assaulted her, and then left her in the home. Later that day, her co-worker found her body and the police began their investigation on the murder of Gina Green. Meanwhile, police officers investigating the Randy case in Zachary, Louisiana, were beginning to suspect Derek of the murders, noticing the patterns of each case being near where Derek worked. They had to wait for more information and evidence, though, to be able to do anything about it, and the Baton Rouge police did not share the same beliefs as the Zachary Police Department, and they thought that this was not the work of a serial killer, but rather a standalone crime, so... Baton Rouge Police Department did not believe that Gina and Randy's crimes were connected. Derek laid low for the rest of 2001. Um, He actually got a new job at a chemical plant outside of Baton Rouge, and um, he would travel there from his home in Zachary. Um, So he's kind of all over the area of Baton Rouge, about a 30 to 40 mile radius. He's been traveling. In January 2002, 21-year-old LSU student Gerilyn DeSoto was stabbed to death and nearly beheaded in her home off Highway 1 in Addis, Louisiana. Derek had actually spotted her on his drive to and from work that he took on Highway 81 every day. He watched her from afar and eventually moved closer and closer to get to know her habits and routine, much like he's done before with his other victims. Derek was actually laid off from his job on January 11th, making him angry as he needed to support his family and his girlfriend, and he was spiraling again. He was extremely irate and really stressed out, and he turned to stalking and murder to gain back the control that he just lost through getting laid off from his job. After picking up his final paycheck on the 14th, he drove directly to Gerilyn's house and knocked on the door asked her to use her phone, which she happily did. She just thought he was a bystander. She had no idea somebody had been watching him. He struck her with the phone that she handed him, and then she ran to go get a gun, which was not loaded, unfortunately, and he stabbed her seven times and slit her throat, like I said, nearly beheading her. He then left through the front door, not even bothering to close the front door, and her husband found the body and then called the police. This started the investigation of the murder of Geraldine DeSoto. That's so sad. And I think the fact that it he like almost decapitated this woman all like because he was losing his job at the company really shows that his career played an impact on like why he was murdering people and the aggression that he was using 
which does also play back into that Randy situation where it was such a violent first case, but he was losing his job at the time. So there, I definitely see the correlation between the two. Yeah, it's such a huge trigger for him. And this is how he gets all of his confidence in a way is because he's always been able to get away with things. He's continuing to get away with murder. He's done it now, what, two, three times? And this is like the way that he's gratifying himself and being able to be okay with himself while failing in his personal life and not having a steady job, not having steady relationships. On May 31st, 2002, 22-year-old recent graduate from LSU, Charlotte Murray Pace, was looking forward to moving to Atlanta to start her new career. She had no idea that someone had been watching her for months, and Derek was the one who had been stalking her entire life. He knocked on the door and asked to use her phone exactly like he did with Gerilyn, and he attacked her as soon as she opened the door. Charlotte was known to be very athletic, and when Derek entered her home, she fought him through the entire house. There were pictures of the crime scene where you could just see where she was trying to fight him throughout that entire house. There was blood everywhere, um, and he unfortunately ended up stabbing Charlotte 83 times with a flathead screwdriver before raping and killing her. He then again left through the front door and her roommate found her and called the police who proceeded to take as much evidence as they could find from the home. At this point in time, Derek had stalked and killed at least three other women and LSU was erupting in shock and fear. They knew that somebody was doing this and there was a lot of gossip now that this was actually a serial killer Um, and they kind of could tell he wasn't planning on stopping anytime soon. Investigators compared the blood found at all three crime scenes, and they found that all the blood matched. So all the DNA in the blood that was left over from the crime scene coming from Derek all matched up in these cases. So how was his DNA not on file because he had already been in jail? Right. So when... They went to go run this. They didn't get any results. And that's because they're supposed to take your DNA when you go to jail and keep it in a database. But it was such a small town and there simply wasn't enough funds. So they skipped that part of taking his DNA, which ends up being a massive, massive issue in this investigation. Because at that point in time, if they had had his DNA... they would have known who it was. But now he is getting away with yet another murder and is able to go along on his killing spree and they have no idea who this person is. In July 2002, Derek had picked his next victim. Pamela Kinnamore was 44 years old with fair skin and dark hair and she was a bit older than his other victims um, but she still fit the physical profile of light skin and dark hair of all of his other victims. On July 12th, he stalked her and entered the back door of her unit, seeing that her keys were actually still in her door so he didn't have to do any forced entry. Pam was in the bathtub when Derek found her, attacking her and dragging her through the house. 
He then carried her to his large white truck and she was not dead at this point. So she's kind of like slumped over in the passenger seat of his truck as he drives about 30 miles away. Um, And then he takes an exit to go beneath a bridge where he throws her out of the truck and proceeds to sexually assault her and slit her throat. Wait, he changed his whole mo yeah he has been shown to kill them and then rape them and then leave to take her in his truck right that's completely different and she's older right it's like almost like he's like losing it i wonder if his last murder charlotte the fact that she was trying to run away played into the fact that he wanted to get an older victim because she wasn't like as able to try to fight back yeah, and I don't know if the fact that Charlotte fought back so hard was another reason he was like, I'm going to take this girl and like have more control over my surroundings and my location. I'm not sure, but the way we're reacting is the exact same way police reacted because it completely changed the entire profile. So confusing. So confusing. When she didn't return from work that night, her husband was obviously immediately worried and called the police to report her missing. Of course, the police did not originally suspect foul play, as we see in so many missing women cases. They thought maybe she was having a hard time and needed to take a drive or, you know, went to a friend's house or just simply forgot to let him know she was going to Bunko or something like that, Um, which unfortunately... That was not the case. Shortly after her disappearance, the family posted billboards around the town with a $75,000 reward for a safe return. And they also asked for any information. And their dreams, unfortunately, were crushed four days later when her body was discovered near Whiskey Bay Bridge between Baton Rouge and Lafayette. She was lying on the water's edge, nude, and the autopsy revealed that she was, in fact, killed by gashes to the neck, likely from a knife and she was also raped a plain silver toe ring had been removed from her body as a sort of trophy for the killer and this is the first that i heard during my research of derek taking any sort of trophy from the crime scene unless there's just some that i don't know about but that was the first time i had heard that which i thought was interesting since his entire mo changed as well no that is so interesting in my head it's almost like he knew that he couldn't keep killing at the same rate that he was. He knew that eventually police were going to catch on. So he wanted to get off to a trophy, which other a lot of other serial killers do. And then also her body now being placed in a different area allows him to go visit easier than at her house. So I wonder if that was his mentality at the end of the day yeah it very possibly could have been um police began to piece together similarities between her murder and other cases nearby and they knew that she had been abducted from her home because of the crime scene and the blood from the crime scene matched the other murders and at that point they knew that they had a serial killer on the loose and they nicknamed him the baton rouge serial killer 
An anonymous eyewitness came forward to say that she may have seen Pam's body in a white truck that night of her disappearance slumped over in the passenger seat, which, as we know, she definitely did because that's exactly where Pam was. The police released a statement looking for a white Chevy pickup truck with the symbol of a fish in the back rear mirror and included a partial plate in the statement. At this point, everybody was worried. Both students and locals were worried for their safety as these killings just seemed so random. In August, the Baton Rouge Police Department created a task force which included the Zachary Police Department officers, which had been keeping an eye out on Derek for years since the murder of Brandy and Zachary. They decided to voice their theory, but not everyone believed them that Derek was a suspect, as the majority of them were convinced that this was the work of a white man and Derek Todd Lee was African American. Due to the common belief that serial killers usually kill those of their same race, they really were stuck on the fact that this killer had to be white. They enlisted the help of an FBI profiler, and the FBI came back with nothing about the race of the suspect, but said that it would have to be a strong and impulsive man between the ages of 25 and 35. There is a massive stereotype that all serial killers are white males, which we know is not true, but there is a large percentage of them that are white males, so that's what contributes to that stereotype. Yes, which is... (laughs) (laughs) and i think we're all like we're all guilty of it we all have that like bias in our mindset but this really altered the way that they investigated this case and caused huge issues for the police department and it was just like they were blindly trying to find a perpetrator without looking at all the facts Um, And in 2002, the Baton Rouge PD asked for over a thousand local white men to submit DNA samples. And of course, none of them matched because the perpetrator is not white. In November 2002, Derek spotted Trenisha in Lafayette, about 55 miles from Baton Rouge, and began watching her. She was 23 years old and had brown hair. However, she was African American, which did not fit the mold of his typical victim. On November 21st, 2002, she was visiting her mother's grave when Derek attacked her. He drove towards Lafayette and found an isolated area near the woods. He beat and sexually assaulted her before killing her. So again, he takes her from the initial point of attack and drives her to another location before actually killing her. It's like he's creating a whole new MO. So this is the first time he's attacked someone outside of their home. And now the second time that he's take them in his vehicle and drive them to an isolated area. And the first time that this person is black. So it's very surprising that he just like is now adjusting how he's murdering these his victims in comparison to what he was doing the first couple of times. Yeah, the only thing that really matches with this murder is her age which was 23 and the fact that she had brown hair so when a local hunter found her in the woods three days later the police couldn't immediately link the crimes together because they thought it was kind of weird um but the dna once again um linked everything together to the other murders 
the crime really confused them and this is what really prompted them to look at their biases and to see that they might not be dealing with a white perpetrator and they were forced to admit that they may actually be wrong. They ended up sending a sample of the blood that has been found at all of these crime scenes off for DNA racial profiling, which was actually kind of a new technology then. And so it took a little bit to get the results. And while they were waiting for the results, a 26-year-old LSU employee named Carrie Yoder um, was actually another victim of Derek. He raped and assaulted her on March 3rd, 2003, and her body was found under the Whiskey Bay Bridge on March 13th, the same place that Pamela was found. The police at this point were frantic, and they needed evidence to help determine who was doing this. There wasn't just some blind theory. They really wanted to make sure that if they accused somebody, they had the right person. It's so crazy as they could have had, yeah, the DNA results, like three victims ago if whenever Derek was arrested they took his DNA right if they would have done what they were supposed to do when he went to jail for that year they would have already known who it was the DNA results that they submitted for racial profiling however came back um, and they revealed that the killer was in fact African-American and at this point the Zachary police department detectives that had been suspicious of Derek for so long had an open door to really represent their theory to the rest of the task force and they began gathering as much suspicious um, information and evidence as they could on Derek and they noticed that there was a pattern of the murders occurring around the time that Derek was fired or days that he was not at work. And this would be times that he was highly stressed or that he had no alibi, which we know is a massive trigger for him. On May 5th, 2003, they requested a DNA sample from Derek, which he did willingly. Why? He kind of like sat there. He kind of, he just let them swab his cheek. He was like, okay. You can take my DNA and acted so like calm and collected to the police. But then the fact that they have taken like they got DNA from all of his victims shows that he was really sloppy. Yeah. And covering up his actions. So for him to just be so willing, it's almost like he wanted to get caught because that's exactly what's going to happen to him. Yeah, I have multiple theories about that. I either think that he was... A, under the illusion that he just wasn't going to get caught because he's never had consequences before in his life. So he like didn't think twice about it in a way. And B, I think that they were so like built up that he didn't have the time to be cautious about what he was doing. It was like this adrenaline rush of just trying to like actually get into the home that of the woman he had been stalking and essentially murder them and then leave and then he was on that high so I think that he was either careless because he's never gotten any consequences in his life or careless because he was on such an adrenaline high after he was cool calm and collected with the police he immediately turned to his wife and was like we need to flee the state right now and Jackie did not believe that he was guilty so she took the kids um to Detroit to stay with a family member and Derek 
fled to Atlanta. They left the day after the DNA sample was taken, and Derek was able to get a job in Atlanta at a hotel, and he just hoped that things would blow over. So because, like I said, technology wasn't as evolved in DNA sampling in 2003, it took some time for the DNA results to come back after swabbing Derek's cheek. And on May 25th, they finally got the results that Derek's DNA matched all of the blood found at these murder scenes. They immediately went looking for him to find that he was gone, and the police shared their findings to the public, which hit national television, and on May 26th, Jackie decided to talk to the FBI and told them that he was in Atlanta after seeing that he had in fact killed all of these people, and realizing that all of those nights that he left her there with their children, and he she didn't know what he was doing, that was what he was doing was stalking women and killing them which was a really hard realization which is such a hard yeah such a hard thing to you know come to terms with and it's probably also scary because you're a victim of domestic abuse and that's probably always been a thought in your mind that your partner was going to eventually turn on you just due to your physical abuse so it was insanely brave of her to come forward when she fled the state as well and she was able to leave Derek and take the children all the way to Detroit I'm sure part of her was really happy to have that opportunity because she's finally gonna like she knows that she's gonna get away from Derek and she knows that she's gonna be able to take her kids to a safe place right and then just to see that he was even worse than she could have ever imagined she's probably she was probably really glad that she wasn't in the same vicinity as him as when all of this was going down. At around 9 p.m. on the night that they received the DNA sampling back and that Jack, we know. At around 9 p.m. on the night that Jackie had talked to the FBI, um, they received an anonymous tip that Derek was sitting in a parking lot in Atlanta and the police descended on this parking lot. Absolutely came out of nowhere, arrested him, and he was completely silent as he was getting put in the back of the cop car, almost as if he knew that he was caught. And during interrogations and interviews, Derek was actually seemingly remorseful, but never admitted to his crimes. In February of 2004, it was confirmed that his DNA was connected to seven murders, and they believed that he could be connected to many more. The Charlotte Murray Pace and Gerilyn DeSuto cases were the only two brought to trial. He was found guilty of both murders and sentenced to life in prison for killing Gerilyn and received the death penalty for killing Charlotte. He was taken to a maximum security prison in Louisiana and sat on death row for years, and he died January 21st, 2016 at the age of 47 from heart disease. So he ultimately served time but didn't serve a full sentence slash did not receive the death penalty which was supposed to be by lethal injection which is really sad for the families because i they often like do recover from such horrific things happening to the woman by like the person that killed them sitting in prison or receiving the death penalty so for him to just like naturally die I'm sure that's a really hard thing for them to process. Yeah, I think that I would have a hard time processing it as well. 
Derek left a path of complete destruction and the families were rightfully destroyed over the horrific deaths of their loved ones and like i said many believe that he is responsible for killing even more than we know so we may never know how many lives he truly took january is national stalking awareness month an annual call to action to recognize and respond to the serious crime of stalking one in three women and one in six men experience stalking at some point in their life Most stalkers use multiple tactics, such as unwanted phone calls, texts and emails, following the victim, showing up unannounced, and sending gifts or cards. Most stalkers are actually someone you know, such as an ex-partner or an acquaintance, and only 19% are strangers. Stalking is years behind in awareness training and education compared to other serious crimes, such as domestic and sexual abuse. Take a few minutes to visit stalkingawareness.org to find resources and information regarding victim response, community guidelines, and how to be an effective advocate. Next week on Uneasy, join us as we discuss how the Murdoch name controlled the low country of South Carolina for almost a century and how one Murdoch, Alec, has 106 grand jury criminal charges against him, including the murder of his own wife and son. Thank you.